Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you on board. If you're watching on YouTube, you can always find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour every day, a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer your audience-submitted questions. Second hour typically is a deeper dive into a topic. Today, our friend Nick Justishan, the Pixel Prof from Drexel University, will be here to help us understand how Blackmagic, DeckLink, and Ultimate, and ATEM video production tools all work in conjunction with Unreal Engine. So it should be a fascinating second hour, but that is our second hour, and this is our regular daily first hour show. So Courtney, what are our viewer producers interested in today? Well, the first question up comes from Vincent Alvarez in Bellingham, Washington. He says, my boss needs a USB mic recommendation for using in Zooms. It'll be used on a PC, and he doesn't want uh, to need a amp or mixer along with it. Traffic noise outside the office, so side rejection is a must. And he also needs an underslung mic arm. His budget is 300 to $400-ish. Sure, well, you had me. Yeah. <laughs> sure, MV7 is a possibility. You had me up until the budget, which I thought, <clears throat> huh, there are some solutions for this. Generally, a uh, something that side rejects means that you're looking for a relatively tight cardioid pattern that'll help you reject the side uh, dress issues. But at that kind of budget level, you're down in the kind of uh, very basic um hypercardioids and cardioid and shotgun style microphones if you want that side rejection. Most everything else is omnis. And of course, microphones are always broken into the two major categories, dynamics, which do reject more side noise simply because they're less sensitive. But... Um, and, and they had the advantage of not needing any kind of power. Most of the mics that people use for voiceover, though, in a, in a circumstance like on Zoom, tend to be cardioids. They require a little bit of bias power. And because of that, they can be shaped into different arrays like the um, shotgun styles that use some kind of magic to kind of keep them directional and pointed in one direction. I, I'm just having a, a, a trouble in the three to $400 uh, zone. Um, I'm thinking maybe the Rode NT1 might be down that low. I don't have a lot of experience uh, trying to figure it out. Sure, MV7s are known for being really good. And one of the pluses they have is that they have both XLR connections and USB. And when you indicate a USB mic, that's a kind of another limitation here. Courtney, you had thoughts? I thought Rode just introduced a new, um, I'm not sure the price of it, uh, their new, was it XDM? It's about two hundred and forty-nine dollars a um, uh -huh. a a, uh, a, a standard cardioid dynamic that has a USB interface on it. Oh, that would be uh, okay. So that, there you go. I would take a look at a, that a, if you need to stay in that zone. They also have a dynamic. Uh, no, that doesn't have a USB interface on it, but. Um, you can yeah, get a so dynamic There's a lot of traditional XLRs, like the Sure SM7Bs and things like that, or 5Bs, and uh, all the rest of the Sure line that's dynamic will do a good job. But yeah. The problem is with those, you're going to need a pretty high, if they don't have a USB interface on them, you're going to need a pretty high uh, 70 dB of gain uh, preamp. So uh, to get up to a yeah. usable level on Zoom, that's the problem with a lot of those. Yeah. USB kind of gives you some limitations. I hope we've given you some thoughts. Um, you might try also coming back and asking this on a Wednesday. Wednesday is when we typically have more of our audio gurus assembled. So uh, give that a suggestion if you can't find something. But Vincent, thank you for the question. We're going to move on to the next one now. 
Okay, next one up comes from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. He says, morning, guys. Is there a way to directly have ISO feeds from an ATIM record to a networked Synology without using the Blackmagic Cloud Pod hardware? Boy, another toughie here, uh, Mike. Let's see. Is ISO feeds from the ATEM. The only... the. So you must have one of the ATEMs that provides it. So not the simple little uh, ATEM minis, but the next couple of levels, the Mini Pro or the Mini ISO. Uh, and if you're trying to record them out to a network solution, boy, that's going to be tougher. Um, they do have have ports on the back of those little ISOs, but I'm not sure how you would go about doing that. I'm, I'm going to I'm going to swing and miss on this, and if nobody else has that much experience with it. Mike, this might, might be another one of those times when uh, you just got the wrong panel today to address this particular topic. Let's, let's sorry, but uh, come back and sneak through it again and let's see if we can get better answers for you next time. Let's go to the next question. This one comes in from Scott Mueller out in uh, Germantown, New York. He says, suggestions for a platform to create a searchable metadata database of videos and clips for an upcoming project. I've used CatDV in the past and found it a bit overwhelming. He's looking for something that's more user-friendly. And I, I resonate with what you're asking for here. Databases can be complex. And what you're really looking for is a database that works with visual material. Um, I, I would have never looked for something outside of that because I tend to use Final Cut Pro, which has a database built into it. And it is designed to handle videos, allows you to use keywords to do ranges uh, within videos. And you can certainly apply keywords to whole videos as you build out your library. Um, it will index for you inside that environment. I would imagine that Premiere Pro and maybe even Avid would do the same. Now, that's that's kind of a big gun, and it's not a specific thing. I've had a lot of friends who've used Cat over, DV over the course of the years, and they are very satisfied with what it does in terms of building that kind of searchable database. But, uh, Courtney, what are your ideas? Well, I haven't used it, but a lot of people have been talking about Lumberjack as a means of extracting uh, metadata from video clips and audio clips and organizing it into a database. So you might look at that. Uh, that's one other software that I've heard about, but I have not. I don't have extensive use with it. I've, I've written database software for broadcast wave files, but uh, not for video files itself. Yeah, I know Phil and Greg, the guys behind Lumberjack Systems. They've been doing this for a long time. Very smart coders and uh, marketers of their product. They were actually the first one to do um, what Premiere just uh, announced in terms of being able to have uh, the editing done by virtue of script editing. When you edit the text, it edits the video behind that. Lumberjack, for me, premiered that about five or six years ago. And uh, I used it on a couple of programs. I don't have a lot of that kind of scripted work to do, so I, I don't use it consistently, but I know it does that. I think that's a little bit different in terms of these databases. For me, a database, I always think of things like FileMaker Pro and uh, oh, even Excel as a kind of a database, something that's going to look up something uh, based on a set of criteria you define to me, that's the visual part of it has always been the the effort. I, I'm not sure if you're trying to say we've got a large group here in an office kind of circumstance, and everybody needs to get to a specific part of a specific clip by typing in some keywords. That's kind of the highest level use, and why things like Cat TV exist. 
The other thing is just you have a whole library of videos or clips of video and you just want to catalog it and be able to find it. If that is the circumstance you're in, even the simple things like Disk Catalog Maker, if you put the clips in something and you add enough basic information, you could use something like one of those disk catalogers and it will show you, you know, where the clip is located, what the clip's name is. You can put some other information like what format it's in and things like that and find it pretty quickly. John Preto, you had some thoughts? We had that guy Altion on, the CEO developer of Altion, and it it did some of this stuff. I'm not sure what your requirements are, but take a look at Altion.io. Yeah, I've had good good success. I've been actually playing with that for about the past six months. Uh, it's a bit like Frame.io in that you store things in the cloud, and once you do that, a distributed team of editors can get access to those things, and it's very good for building teams to be able to work on the same thing. I'm not sure that uh, it's, it's kind of in a different category slightly than CatDV, which is designed for a central repository on-premises to be able to find clips out of a big bunch of storage as opposed to working primarily in the cloud, that may or may not be a problem for you. Courtney, additional thoughts? Yeah, uh, you know, conventional database management tools, uh, you know, you can build a database out of any of those, uh, FileMaker Pro, like you mentioned, anything like that. But the the worm and the, <laughs> the, the, the thorn in this question has to do with metadata, which is data that's contained within the individual files of the videos, uh, if that's what he's referring to. And extracting that is a bit of a twisted nightmare because of lack of standards of how that metadata is stored across different video files. And some files won't have metadata stored in them. Some will. Some of them will have different schemas if they're stored in XML. If they're not, it could be proprietary formats. And finding one program that can read all forms of metadata is fairly difficult if that's what he's looking for. Of course, you can manually enter the data for each item, uh, you know, cognitively without uh, help from anyone to create that database, like you said. But uh, if you're trying looking for something to automate it, that's going to be a tougher problem. Yeah, I will say that I've had, I don't really look for this product because Final Cut does a lot of this. Now, you'd have to be on Mac and you'd have to be in a system where everybody can get access to that same database. And, and, uh, Final Cut is not in its on its own in its current iteration, and everybody's hoping for, it, but nobody knows the future. It's not a, a networked, accessible by a variety of seats things, particularly the database structure inside of it. But as a central repository that has lots of clips and to be able to look up individual scenes by keyword, that's a piece of cake for it. I think you're kind of in the w w middle, Scott, between a lot of different partial solutions, and maybe we haven't touched on the ideal one, but, uh, you know, figure, look around a little more. And if you find something that you really are happy with, please come back and let us know. We're always looking for what the state of the art is and the state of the art in terms of network and cloud-based video production and search continues to evolve almost daily. So uh, good question. And hopefully we gave you some at least initial tips on where to go to look. Let's go on to our next question. Next one comes in from Mark Giuliani in Washington, D.C. says, uh, here is something scary. Go to uh, pronouncements.com and put in Giuliani. Listen to the U.S. pronunciation. It sounds like my voice pronouncing the name. Is AI learning voices from IP addresses? Oh, that's a question. Here's our resident guru for cloud uh, search and AI. John, what's happening? 
I looked at this thing and I tried several other names, including my own and 10 other ones. And yours is the only one that matches. It's like, it's like you submitted your own pronunciation to, to their database. I don't think they're doing any scraping. It looks super rudimentary. It looks like it's user generated content to me. I don't think there's any funny business going on, but it is, it is, does sound like Mark. <laughs> That's interesting. Maybe, maybe the cloud gods have decided that you are the exemplar for the pronunciation of Giuliani and will be so forever. Keep your fingers crossed. Jesse Kester, your thoughts. Hey, it got Kester right. That's all I care about. <laughs> uh, I'm not even going to talk but it about it. But wasn't your voice, right, Jesse? Yeah. No, no, it was not. I think Mark yeah. is pulling our leg here. I think he added his own. Yeah, I think he found some way to game the system. And now forever, henceforth, the only way to pronounce Giuliani will be exactly how he does it. Uh, Mark, good luck with that. Let's And tell us if you work out a way to get residuals. <laughs> that would probably be a really nice payday. Uh, next question. Are you listening, AI? It's me, Mark. Uh, next one comes in from Mike Johnson in Rockledge. Florida. He says, I need to purchase cameras, Sony a A7R5 and an FX3 to be used in a secured area. A security requirement is that they have no wireless connectivity, i.e. Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. The suggestion is to just get the manufacturer to remove it. Is that possible? Ooh, I, want to, I want to listen to the answer to this one. Jesse Kester, start us off here. I don't know about removing it, but Sony's do come with an airplane mode and you could turn that on. I don't know if it's permanently on. You would have to uh, test it and check it, but uh, they do have airplane mode, which turns off all wireless communication. Oh, that's nice. I didn't know about that. Courtney. Yeah, I was going to mention airplane mode, but uh, if it's a requirement that it not be able to be turned back on, in other words, so somebody couldn't go in and just turn it back, take it out of airplane mode, uh, you might be able to get someone to change the firmware and disable the uh, Wi-Fi chip. The manufacturer is not going to remove it physically from the camera because that's too difficult in a production line. You could get a technician to go in and, uh, you know, there's a uh, Wi-Fi slash Bluetooth antenna that's connected to that board inside the camera somewhere. And you could just de develop a little connector that shorts that antenna lead out, unplug the antenna, plug your little shorting plug in, and that might permanently disable the uh, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth capabilities of it. That's the only thing I could suggest, short of going in and doing major surgery on the uh, tiny little flexible circuit boards that are inside that camera, which is a nightmare. I believe the Sony North American headquarters is about a mile and a half from where I'm sitting right now. You could always always fly out here to to San Diego and, you know, go in the front door and just say, hey, I got this problem. <laughs> Maybe somebody there will take pity on you and fix everything. Uh, I'm not going to keep my fingers crossed. I'm not going to hold my breath, though, because that's. Wow, that's a that's a pretty tough ask. But maybe there's maybe somebody has you know maybe run into this problem before and they have some solution for it that's just reflash the EEPROM and you're done. Who knows? Next question. Uh, this one comes in from uh, T.J. Worrell in Minneapolis. What is the purpose of the momentary switch inside the Blackmagic Designs bidirectional SDI HDMI 3G converter? I'm still looking for documentation that mentions it. Courtney, do you have any thought? Uh, if it's internal, in other words, it's not accessible from outside the, the, the case, uh, if, and it's a momentary switch, it's probably uh, for internal use only to reflash the firmware if the firmware has been hosed by an update or something to reflash the bootloader uh, 
in the uh, firmware itself. They have to put it into a mode that lets them connect an RS-232 computer to it and reflash the bootloader uh, so that you can update the firmware. That's what I'm thinking. But if there's no documentation of it, that's probably what it's for. Yeah, first impulse, if you see a switch or a button and you don't know what it does, hold it for about 10 seconds and see what happens. You never can tell. Um, yeah, if you never want to use it again, just do that. <laughs> don't say, I told you that. I, that's, I, oh, gosh, I'm on the record now. Let's go on to the next question. Next one comes in from Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Salisbury, Maryland. He says, I love doing a quick edit on Resolve for the iPad. Fast and convenient. Do you think the $96 for the studio version is worth it? Jesse Castor. Um, I would say probably yes. That is a one-time payment, not a recurring subscription. Um, if you're enjoying editing on the iPad, go for it. We have like 20 terabytes connected to our computer for editing, so it's hard for me to imagine doing anything on an iPad. But if it's working for you, uh, chuck them a hundo. <laughs> well, yeah, I wonder because the new iPads have USB-C, right? So in the in the future, will that just be an alternate editing device? If you decide to connect it to your gazillion terabyte RAID on your desk, would that work? I can't imagine why not, but who knows? We'll see. All right, thanks for the question, Talik, and uh, let us know if you decide to spring for it and do it. Come in and give us a review, or at least drop a question and say it's working great or it's not working. We'd love to hear. Let's go on to the next question. This one comes in from Douglas Carmichael. He says, I was looking at Game Creek Video's website, and the Grass Valley K-Frame switchers in their trucks not only have nine MixFX buses, but 16 DPM channels. How do you use that many MixFX, and what is a DPM channel? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I was just thinking, you know, the overall scope of this question, how do you use that many? That, that to me strikes like all the guys I know who have 600 pairs of uh, tennis shoes. <laughs> how do you use that many pairs? Well, the point is not using them all. I think sometimes the point is having the capacity to know that you will never run out of, a, of the perfect pair of tennis shoes. Courtney, your thoughts? Well, a mix, each mix effect uh, bus is used for a layer within the stack of video that you're putting out. And these days, with all the little logos and lower thirds and uh, boxes, multi boxes, remember, for you need a, a mix, a t typically a mix effect bus for each box that's on the screen. If you're putting five commentators up there in little boxes and you're putting a lower third under each one of them, you know, each one of those is going to require a mix effect bus. Uh, ATIM calls those super sources and kind of you know, uh, collects them into a single compositor that takes all those inputs and builds the little boxes, et cetera. But a Grass Valley's method was to have a separate bus so that you could, for example, switch out the contents of one box live on the air uh, with the with just buttons on that bus. So you could change the people in box three, you know, from one to the other as different people speak. Or change and change their lower thirds, et cetera. And it's all programmable uh, through their interface. So that I wonder who DPM, uses it inside. I'm not sure what DPM, maybe it's digital position management or digital, I don't know. Kind of like DVE maybe. Uh, you know, I wonder, other than the financial news networks, which seem to glory in having 72 different crawling text things, plus stock tickers, plus God knows what on the screen. Uh, so there are probably those kind of use cases that are edge cases that are just, you never have enough. I sometimes look at those things in the airport and go, how can people even read any of this? 
And I guess people watch that all day long. It's interesting. Oh, DPM, Digital Picture Manipulator. Thank you. Yeah, that's the same as DVE. It's a a scaler and positioner and 3D, uh, you know, make it tumble in from the right, et cetera. (laughs) (laughs) The most important thing is to have a stock graph tumble in from the right. I'm being facetious. Let's move on to the next question. This one comes in from uh, Christian Kohler in Somerset, New Jersey. It says, recommendations for a USB mic to be used for Zoom that can be positioned outside the video image. The room will have minimal sound treatment. Would a Shure MV7 or an AT2020 USB-X be a significant upgrade over my existing Blue Yeti? Yes, anything's an upgrade over a Blue Yeti. <laughs> His budget is $100 to $300 US. Uh, Courtney, take us away. Well, if you, you know, you could get what I'm using, the lovely Stellar X2 positioned right below the frame. Uh, and it's coming in sideways. I have it on an underslung arm coming in, uh, I don't know if I can get up high enough, sideways, and just lower it down so it's just out of view. Uh, it's not a dynamic mic. You'll find that dynamic mics need to be placed closer, to, you know, pretty close to the uh, mouth, and they want to, and usually most dynamic mics are end address. So you got to put the microphone up somewhere so it's pointed at your, the end of the microphone is pointed at your mouth. So you need a side address microphone if you're going to come in low out of frame. Um, the Stellar X2, which several of us here use on the panel, is $200. So that's a choice, although you're going to need a, uh, a some type of mixer with a uh, not a whole lot of gain, 50, 50 dB of gain or so to handle it. And uh, most USB interfaces that are available out there, small mixers, uh, will handle it quite well. And just get you, this is a $12 underslung arm. Seems to work okay. There you go. Uh, It is time for my reminder to you all that we are constantly accepting questions and we derive the show by your questions and your votes on those questions. So if you have anything you'd like us to cover here in the first hour as we get ready for Nick Justice and to come in for our second hour, you are more than welcome to submit them. And please take your time and for everybody paying attention to the show this morning, vote up the questions you uh, want us to spend the most time on. Your decisions in that respect determine which questions we spend the most time on and uh, how fast we get to them. So vote often, vote early. I think you can only vote once, but regardless, make sure you vote on the questions. Let's move on to the next one. This one comes in from uh, Gordon Lake in Los Angeles. It says, how might the writer's strike affect what we all do? And we were talking about that in the pre-show today. Courtney has been a member of the union for a long time and has a lot of insight on this. So, Courtney, what's going on? Well, they are on strike, uh, and I am a member of two unions. Um, Basically, the story is that most unions whose contract is not up have no-strike clauses in most of the contracts, like the Teamsters and IA, uh, so that uh, they can't strike necessarily at the same time, but the individual users, if there is a picket line up in front of whatever event you're going to be going to or attending, and if uh, if it might affect what we do here at Office Hours, if you work on live presentations or shows, galas that involve uh, members of the industry that are members of unions, you might be faced with a uh, a picket line out in front of that uh, event. So uh, your your choice is to cross the picket line or not, or support the uh, people, writers that are out on strike and not cross the picket line, and that's up to each individual union member. 
they are not required to cross to uh, cross it or not cross it, and uh, they are not penalized for deciding not to cross it. So uh, that's how it might affect what we do. I don't know. It depends on what you do individually. From who's the we? There you go, Jesse Kester. You had some thoughts. I have more of a question, and maybe Courtney, you can offer some insight into this. Um, I'm looking forward. I'm, I'm thinking more long term when we're talking about this strike. What is pre- preventing the the majority of the distribution platforms, the Netflix, Hulu's, and Amazons, from sourcing their their content from non union studios? It seems like this would uh, you know, precipitate a, a larger shift in those platforms to avoid working with uh, union projects altogether. And is there anything is is there anything that binds those platforms to the union system, or can they just ship all their production overseas and make it easier for them? Courtney, well, they can and have done that in the past. They've moved a lot of production to Canada during one strike. I remember several years ago in the commercial industry. I moved a lot of commercial production to Vancouver and uh, Toronto. Uh, so uh, although there are divisions of that same union in both of those uh, countries, in both of those states, uh, so uh, it can be or it can't be a problem. It does, you know, it moved. The last writer's strike uh, was in uh, on 2007, I believe, and that uh, forced us into the uh, pain that we now know as reality programming. On television, because it doesn't necessarily require writers, and uh, so there may be some other form of television that comes about as a result of this writer's strike. Um, and I, I heard them tossing around some ideas, proposals that were being presented on the table, like uh, the producers agreeing not to use AI or Chat GPT to generate scripts during any work interruption. Whether they got that through or agreed to it or not, uh, you know, we may be looking at uh, the producers writing some shows. The first shows to be affected, of course, are the the live entertainment shows that are on nightly, uh, you know, the late night talk shows, et cetera, that depend on current events to write all their their funny jokes and monologues. Whether they'll just go on hiatus or whether they'll go forward with just the on-camera host, as long as the on-camera host is not a guild member. Uh, he can write his own jokes, he or she, and uh, or producers could step into that role and write those jokes uh, if they want. Or they probably could turn to ChatGPT. We'll find out how good a comedy writer ChatGPT is, maybe if they continue with their live shows. That's going to be a fascinating thing to watch develop. Jesse, you had additional thoughts? Yeah, it just seems like in 2007, we were much, the the entire industry was much more tethered to the Los Angeles production area. And the whole industry has changed so much. I'm, I'm very curious to see how effective a strike is in improving the well-being of writers' lives. I mean, they might get what they're asking for in their initial negotiations, but two, three, four, five years down the road, my feeling is that this is just going to be shaving off work and there will be less money for right. There will be fewer productions. They might get a boost in, uh, they might get what they're asking for, but it's just going to be shaving productions off brutally. I think this is, we're headed in towards a, a bit of a production bloodbath for this one. Courtney. 
Well, since we don't have a plethora of questions here and we can wax on poetic for a bit of time here, the uh, I'll offer some insight. Um, the uh, We may be moving into a whole different era of, uh, of production and writing. Uh, it may be all changing as a result. Uh, so um, it seems that uh, each time we go into a negotiation, and the primary impetus for this negotiation was about streaming media and the, the differences between scripted, uh, I mean, uh, uh, theatrical distribution and standard network television distribution shows versus shows produced strictly for streaming media uh, for Netflix series or Prime, you know, Amazon Prime series, or those series on Hulu that are are generated on Apple TV that are generated only for streaming and not for presentation on network. Uh, the problem with uh, all the the method of calculating salaries and income and residuals in the past is based on box office and TV viewability and ratings, and when you're doing something for a subscription service, you're signing up for a subscription and there isn't necessarily any metrics available on how well this show did versus another show. So how do you compensate the writers from you know a hit show versus a non-hit show on streaming uh, differently? Or whether is it just a longer contract at the standard base prices? So participation in residuals is may have to be completely recalculated across the board in the entertainment industry they come up with a new a new model for calculating how residuals are are compensated because who knows if you know if you do a hit show on a subscription service nobody's tracking they probably know but they don't report publicly uh, how many people are watching each show or downloading each show because it's not uh, you know it could happen over a period they could you know, I'm watching uh, Ozark right now, which finished up, you know, three years ago. So, so residual compensation is pretty tough to do on something that's available for multiple years for people to watch at their leisure. So, I don't know how they're going to calculate uh, uh, other than the day rates that uh, people get for creative input. Interesting. Jesse, you had another follow-up? Uh, yeah, just just to be a little bit, I want to tweak what you said a little bit. Those metrics are all absolutely available. They're just wildly protected by the companies who own those metrics of uh, view times and the actual value of the show. Um, it just, yeah, I'm I'm I, I I my heart is always with the workers and the the people doing the labor. I'm just I'm so worried about this one that it's not going to go in a positive direction for anyone uh, working in Hollywood. Well, you add to that the absolute flood, gigantic flood of international content. I look at my Netflix thing, and there are so many shows now that are not produced in the U.S. There are so many in from coming out of Japan, coming out of France, coming out of just various places around the world that do fine quality production. And with good dubbing and the rest of the things, I can enjoy those shows, um, even though not any of their production really touched the U.S. system at all. Uh, it, it's just it, a lot of change going on. Jesse, you had a final thought before we move on. And that's the that's the big one for me is that um, the 2007-2008, it was writers pushing back against uh, Warner Brothers, Disney, Fox, you know, their neighbors. Um, they're going up against these streaming platforms that have production infrastructure in every major market that they, they deliver to. Uh, so I, 
I don't see the value for, uh, I don't see why the streaming services would make much effort to stick to this uh, union city when they've got uh, just a buffet of options available to them. I wonder if talent, and I'm talking about talent in terms of all the creatives, not just the on-screen talent, but the writers, um, even craft services, down to anywhere, if there will eventually come to be a process where if you contribute in a significant way to a show that turns out to be a success in terms of the numbers of clicks or whatever, that they figure out a way to track and maybe alter a piece of the compensation based on the fact that you contributed to a gigantic success as opposed to a modest success. I'm just spitballing here. Courtney, last thought? Uh, yeah, one of the problems has been that there have been two different contracts, different contracts for streaming media versus their regular basic basic contract for broadcast media and theatrical. And the streaming media was at lower lower hourly rate or or episode rate for writers uh, than the the network stuff, but the work these days is just the same. I mean, there's just as much budget that's now going into streaming media productions as there was going into network or theatrical distribution. So the writers are contending, and they're right, rightly so, that the work is the same. They should get paid the same as they do for writing a major motion picture or a major television show. Uh, so that's one of the sticking points, but that's easily negotiable because that's not necessarily based on the popularity or the box office returns based on the hourly or the production uh, of that particular episode or the writing of that particular episode. It's the back end that's getting sticky as far as how to calculate that, that residual. So. Interesting. Well, everything is changing, and that's the nature of the world. Things change over the course of time, and we're going to change to our next question right now. Okay, coming in all the way from uh, Funsak Dorji in Darasamla. <laughs> Darasala. Uh, I'll never be able to. Dara, Daramsala? India. Dharamshala. Thank you, my little friend Mickey here was chiming in. <laughs> he says, greetings. How much does it cost per hour to use AWS Elemental to stream to Facebook and YouTube at 1080p60? Thanks. And John Preto is going to help us out here. John? I got a message from Mickey. He said, come, uh, Mickey, from Jonas. He said, come back on Friday and he'll answer this question. <laughs> well, that's not very nice. <laughs> I know if Alex was here, he'd probably have a figure off the top of his head. I think the elemental streams, I remember uh, Alex talking about it at length, and it's it's relatively inexpensive per minute or per what, you know, it charges something like, I, I seem to remember like a dollar something a minute. The thing is, if you only start it and stop it for the length of the uh, the time that you're uploading or live onto the stream, it's pretty affordable. I was surprised at how affordable it was. I guess the problem is that if you forget to turn it off, <laughs> you can find yourself with a whoopsie bill in coming in uh, that you know you forgot to turn it off, so it just kept charging you that modest fee per per minute or per hour for a long period of time. No bueno. So hopefully that helps, uh, Funstock. We appreciate your question. Good to have you here. And let's move on to our next question. Coming in from Mark Giuliani in Washington, D.C. says, I have a high PR40 mic with a Mix Pre 3 and noise assist. Everything works well on Zoom, but on Teams, people can't hear me after a few minutes. Any suggestions? John Preto has one. John? Yeah, I don't use Teams, Mark. That's the answer right there. Uh, call me... <laughs> 
Call me on Teams and we'll troubleshoot it. I'm, I have Teams installed on my machine. We'll tr- fix it. Courtney, you had some thoughts too? Uh, one thing is you might make sure that in Zoom, um, or if Teams has an equivalent, see if they have an equivalent um, original sound on so it turns off any noise cancellation on Teams because you may get the noise cancellation fighting between the uh, noise assist and the noise cancellation on uh teams so it may be fighting against each other and going against each other and bringing you down and down and down and down and down thinking you're each one thinking your noise because of the delay involved and the noise cancellation between noise assist and teams noise assist could there be a circumstance where there's so much uh noise suppression that it thinks the connection was dropped i mean there's really you know it gets down to absolute zero input and somehow it reads that as we just have to stop working for you. I don't know. Jesse Kester, you have any thoughts? One thing you might want to do is make sure that your mix pre is set to the same frequency that your computer is expecting. So if, you're, um, if your mix pre is at, uh, I, I'm not sure, I haven't used a mix pre, but if it's at 48 and your computer is expecting 44.1 or something like that, uh, what this can do is create a situation where it works for a little bit and then it completely falls off of track. Uh, this happens with our ATEM Mini. Uh, it works fine with Zoom, but when we're live streaming in browser, in YouTube, in Firefox, uh, it gets confused about what frequency it's expecting from the ATEM, and the ATEM gets confused about what frequency it should be delivering. So make sure that your, your device is uh, matched frequencies with what your computer is expecting. I've had that same exact thing happen when I've been trying to work with both 48 kilohertz and 44.1. The, the errors just continue to grow until it gets to the point where it goes, I can't figure this out anymore. I'm just stopping. So, yeah, good suggestion, Courtney. Uh, hopefully, you take get it taken care of, Mark. If not, come back and we'll investigate further. Let's move on to the next question. Next one comes in from Douglas Carmichael. He says, when your income depends on your internet connection and you have a wired fiber or cable connection as your main connection, what backup plans do you make? Courtney, start us off. Well, 4G or LTE is a good source. Uh, if you have a phone, make sure it has a uh, hotspot uh, you know, software capability on it so that you can connect over that in an emergency uh, you could, if you want to pay for it uh, regularly, set up a point-to-point uh, 5G connection. Check your wireless providers in your neighborhood if they have 5G connections. And if there's a tower near enough by that you could put up an antenna on your roof and collect some 5G connectivity, good old 5G connectivity or LTE connectivity uh, with outside antenna would be a good fallback. Or, of course, there's the old POTS line. If you have an old copper line, telephone line coming into your house, you could get uh, DSL installed as a backup as well. It will be not not very high frequency and it won't be very good for streaming video out from your location, but you can use it uh, depending upon what your business is that requires internet connectivity. You should have enough connectivity to handle email and uh, you know general business uh, communications. John Preto. Yeah, along those same lines, what Courtney just articulated, you, you've basically got three options. You've got two hard lines, at least here in Vegas. We have two providers hard line. I've got cable, and then I've got the phone provider. Those could be fed both into like a Ubiquity uh, router, and then those do failover on the Ubiquities. Um, or you could go with a, a point-to-point dish. I had one on my roof. That's a point-to-point provider. Got about 100 um, symmetrical both ways. 
And then you could use something um, like Keenan's router also, which is which is wireless bonded uh, router or the Wi-Fi hotspot. So three options. Does the bonded cellular router that has multiple cards in there for multiple services, is it on all the time or does it just on demand kind of thing? Do you have to continue those cellular plans even when you're not there so it's ready when you do need it? No, it will, it will switch. If you've got a hardline connection, it will switch between the two. Ah, nice. Okay, yeah. good. Uh, helps me understand. Let's move but, to the next question. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, but you do probably have to maintain an account with those providers turned on. At the okay, point. so at not, least some minimal. Yeah, but not with not with Keenan's unit. They they oh, really? provide all the bandwidth. You don't have to have the individual accounts with the provider. That's oh, the, so they're a, they're a provider themselves, and yeah, they, exactly. they subscribe and then parcel that out. I see. Oh, so, that's a good reason for thinking about subscribers. Yeah. Nice. Uh, by the way, it is 7.40 right now, which means that it's time for my next announcement about the fact that we are always looking for your input into the show. If you have any questions or suggestions, we have a good number. I think we'll probably get to the end of this hour the way we are. But if you want to sneak a couple more questions in there, and as always, if you want to uh, vote on the questions that exist there, they will come up sooner than if you don't vote on them. Okay, that said, we're going on to the next question. This one comes in from Art Aldrich in New York. I have been using Zoom ISO with Mimo Live with great success. I would like to have, uh, I guess it's 1080p, but the 10 user minimum gives me hesitation. Is there a cheaper way to get 1080 video from Zoom? Yeah, I think he's looking at the Zoom subscription that the business class license or something like that requires 10 uh 10, subs 10 subscriptions or something like that. I don't know if that's still the case. Uh, we, we've talked about it a lot, how you can get better bandwidth from a Zoom account or something like that. And at, at basic, it seems to be you make your case to them and they can decide to allow you to do that. So if you're doing a lot of this kind of streaming, uh, if you contact the, the service department and say, I'd like to have 1080p for these reasons, there's at least a reasonable chance that they might go along with it. It might take you a little time to get that done. So don't don't uh, <laughs> call them today and expect to have it for a Thursday show kind of thing. That's probably not going to work. But uh, I, I would start down the path now and see. Uh, maybe, you, maybe we've heard, this is what I'll say. We've heard of exceptions to the you must have a, a 10 account package to get it. And there are also people like uh, Guy Cochran who've been here who've been nice enough to suggest that they have some of these packages and they're happy to kind of share and work out some arrangements. So that might be worth pursuing to uh, look around for somebody who has one of those larger accounts and see if they're willing to share with you. Uh, just some ideas. Let's move on to the next question. Next one comes in from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. He says, how can we learn from the late night talk show guest format? And how do you rate the late shows for guest handling? Who does the best job? Seth Meyers, Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, Stephen Colbert, James Corden, who's now gone. Yeah. <laughs> well, formerly James Corden, but they, uh, bookers. Boy, that's, yeah, bookers and guest handling. Jesse Kester, start us off. I think the, the best thing we can learn from how uh, late night talk shows handle guests is uh, how to really just set your guest up for absolute success in a very short amount of time. I'm a little uh, heartbroken that you left Conan O'Brien off of that list because I think he was always phenomenal at handling his, his best guests and that he would just kind of wind them up and let them go. 
And that was my favorite thing to watch in Late Night. And if you want the finest deconstruction of what Late Night Talk Show is, please look up uh, Nathan Fielder, his show. Nathan, for you, he did an episode called The Anecdote. It is a perfect uh, explanation of what what that job is and what happens behind the scenes and what what's actually going on in talk show guest land. Jesse, put that commit that to writing and put it in the the, the questions. I'd love to take a look at that. I didn't know that existed. Courtney, your thoughts? Well, most of those late night shows have uh, have a uh, pre interview interview, which, in other words, all of their guest hosts are contacted by the the uh, Booker and they go over what topics they want to cover while they're in the cou- on the couch, and you know what new shows do they want to promote? Is there any are there any little props or pictures or anything that the guest is going to need to have uh, ready to whip out and show the audience uh, what they're going to be talking about? So there's a lot of preparation that goes in before the guests. They don't just come out and say, Ah, what do you want to talk about? I don't know. What do you want to talk about? You know, they they have a guideline and a series of questions on cards, obviously. Uh, all of the late night shows used that format. Of course, they don't necessarily have to stick to it. A lot of, a lot of uh, late night people would throw away the card when the guest would go off in an obtuse direction. And that would be a lot funnier than what was prepared for them to talk about. So uh, I think uh, Kimmel does a good job of thinking on his feet and taking the taking the conversation wherever it goes. And, you know, you've got to remember each guest is limited to a certain time slot that they only have a limited amount of time. And if they go over, they're going to bump guests uh, that are coming on later. That's less of a problem now. It used to be a problem on the Carson show where they'd have two or three guests scheduled. Now most of the late night talk shows only have one guest or maybe two at the most. So it's uh, not likely you know they'll have a musical guest later on perhaps that they have to reserve room for. But the talk type guests, where they don't know how long the conversations could lead to, uh, you know, they don't want to end up short, so they want to end up that they make sure they have enough enough uh, stuff to talk about to fill their their time slot. Uh, that's yeah, that's and more I, of a problem oh, these days. And I've been a little close to this because my wife used to be on local television, and and the local level, it's just interesting. It's not as high pressured as the national level, but some of the same rules apply. And I remember she was supposed to just do one or two shows, but she did a really good job, and she was a little bit funny and 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 very personable. And so they kept asking her back, and the next thing you know, she's on every uh, every week weekly on a first segment, and they gave her a second segment, and it just grew and grew from there. Uh, and that's, I think, why you tend to see the same faces who do these kind of things. Um, either it's a professional entertainer who's plugging their next project or something like that, or it's somebody who has been on shows before and they understand that their uh, their attractiveness, and I say that in the broadest possible sense, um, that they they make an audience want to watch. And if so, you bring that back over and over again, particularly daily shows. And we experience a little of that here because we do this 24 seven, we do this every single day and have been for a thousand plus shows. Uh, it's very hard to look at and plan content and bring in guests and book guests. And if somebody at the last minute says, I just can't do it, you have to have a fallback plan constantly for every day. And it just goes through topics. We're constantly in the back end of this show. Uh, discussing how far out can we book, how can we plan, what are the big events coming up that we can kind of build a little bit of coverage around. It's just a constant process, not an easy thing, but it's fascinating to be a part of. Jesse, you had another thought before we finish this up? 
Thank you, JJ, in the back end for reminding me. Uh, John Stewart, when he was hosting The Daily Show, that was the oh, only Lord. host in Late Night that you would pray he had a boring, soggy politician because it would be the best conversation you'd ever heard with that politician. You would pray that it wasn't a Hollywood guest on his show, but an, an actual like deep dive conversation that they do in the middle part of that show. He was phenomenal. That's very, very true. And sometimes that's the toughest thing about interviewees who come in, they're there to plug their movie, they don't want to really be there. And they will say the minimum number of sentences and then the minimal number of thank yous. And then they just want to get out of there as opposed to somebody who really wants to engage and help the audience understand their craft or something else. Let's go on to the next question. This one comes in from... Um Chris Wiedner in Lafayette, Indiana, he says, "Thoughts this group would appreciate. Thought this group would appreciate this. Archiving is always a hot topic, and he has a link to something about sixteen millimeter. I haven't looked at it, anybody. Yeah, I took a look at that. That was fascinating. Jesse, tell us more. Uh, it looks like a museum and archive of sixteen millimeter that is designed to bring attention and knowledge to to the beautiful, exciting world of sixteen millimeter. Uh, for such a for such a format that is uh, tethered inherently to the moving image, the website is really a lot of text and a couple of still images. And I hope that the website uh, lives up to the promise of the format that they are celebrating sooner than later. Uh, Courtney Gooden. I haven't looked at the website, but I don't know if it is an archive of 16 millimeter films, which you you can find a lot of on YouTube these days. You know, just when you thought something was uh, uh, lost to obscurity of some you know health film you saw in high school 50 years ago, uh, you know you can find it on YouTube. Believe it or not, uh, <laughs> that someone has found that 16 millimeter army training film and posted it somewhere. Uh, as far as archiving goes. Uh, I don't know if the, the site touches on this, but for years, and probably still so, most theatrical features are archived, uh, even though they're shot digitally on digital cameras, they're archived on film uh, with YCM separations on black and white uh, motion picture negative 35 millimeter, and they're put in a salt mine somewhere. That seems to be the most long, long-lived archive media right now. That they can what guarantee it is about you can get an image off of it, you know, 50 years from now. What is it about salt mines? You know, why don't they do potassium mines or, or you know, Constant cinnamon mines? temperature, they're underground and uh, oh, maybe they're that's very it. dry. Low, yeah. low humidity. Ah, low humidity. Okay, so it somehow soaks it up, I guess. John Preto, thoughts? So Chris Widener, like me, must have been the 16 millimeter projector guy in grade school because we're the only ones that could thread them. And I'm sure a lot of you guys out there in office hours were also the AV guy in grade school. I speak sprockets fluently <laughs> and, and sprocket loops just long enough to make sure that the tension doesn't get out of hand and, and break the film. Let us move to the next question, please. I was going to say, I still have my pocket protector right here, just in case. There I you go. It. Paul Wallace from Austin, Texas says, podcasts have finally made it to YouTube Music Premium. Will this pump up YouTube Music's 80 million subscriber base to 500 million Spotify levels? 210 <laughs> million paying Spotify users right now. Yeah. Boy, talk about right product, right place at the right time. There's a movie, I think, about uh, Spotify that came out of uh, somewhere around Denmark or something like that. It was really fascinating about how it came to be. Jesse Kester, your thoughts? I, I don't think it'll close a gap that big, but it certainly can't hurt. Yeah, that's true. Uh, 500 million people globally. 
interested in that. That's fascinating to me. Next question. Coming in from Douglas Carmichael. He says, Video Link makes the ReadyCam, which is a remotely controlled studio package for non-technical guests. Ever had any experience with one? He has a link. No, I've never uh, even seen one. I know Guy Cochran's One Button Studio, we talk about a good little bit here. So it looks like this may be something uh, similar to that. You know, the technologies that enable this were really hard to come by even five years ago. And because of what happened during the pandemic and so many people wanting to get on, there's just been this fabulous increase in remote control technology for bringing programs uh, to the public from your home or from your business or wherever else. So it doesn't surprise me that there's still a lot of activity, a lot of uh, generated interest in that. And really, it's enabled what we do here every day. So the fact that we are able to do this comes from the fact that these tools have just exploded in relevance and accessibility over the course of the last few years. Courtney, you had some thoughts? Now, I was just wondering if this is like a Insta360 link where you can kind of take remote control over a pan tilt little pan tilt head of the video camera from uh, from the call-in person or whether it's an AI-adjusted camera that uh, looks at the image coming in and tracks your face, et cetera. Uh, we're going to find more and more of those as uh, machine vision is being built into most of the, a lot of the chip cameras these days. Uh, you're going to find... Um, higher resolution chips that will digitally follow you around within the in the frame and adjust for uh, a f talking face. Yeah, the fact that he described it as a remote controlled studio package is kind of what led me to think that it might be something like the one button studio where a remote operator controls not just pan and tilt, but maybe things like studio lighting and or um, other elements in order to kind of remotely control or tweak or perfect the look of the signal coming out. I so think that's where own, things uh, are going. Yeah. Tesla robot boom operator that goes <laughs> yeah. follows you around you know, with a boom microphone. If you can, yeah. Some of these new lights, you know, you get DMX control remotely and you can change color temperature and say, you know, though there's a window over on the side and it's the lights changed because it's five o'clock in the afternoon and your technical director should be able to compensate for that with your camera settings and things like that. I think that's certainly coming down the path and doesn't surprise me at all. I don't, I'm not experienced with this particular system, but it, that's what we see and we talk about a lot here at Office Hours. Let's go on to the next question. Comes in from Tony Mobley in Noonan, Georgia. He says, I have an ATEM, hello, I have an ATEM Mini Pro, but I'm not maximizing the use of it. Are there better ways to improve the use of it? Jesse, help us out. Um, the, the ATEM series of switchers has really changed how we do pretty much all of our productions. So uh, one of the early changes that it made to our production pipeline was that we got into a multi-camera one-button record. So we would plug uh, three, four Blackmagics into the ATEM. You hit the record button to the SSD on the switcher, and it will activate all the cameras that have an SSD plugged into them as well. And that means that we can do four camera productions on site with one person operating the ATEM and then one other person operating a mobile camera and keep the others locked on to their shots. Um, another thing we do is we use uh, still and black to do take markers. So you load a still of, you know, somebody doing a thumbs up for your good take and you uh, hit the black button to mark a, you know, a bad take, something that you're not going to use. 
Uh, when you get into uh, DaVinci Resolve, you color code your stills to be green and uh, your blacks will represent as a different color, uh, you know, as a, as a different type of cut. And then you know everything before a green marker is now a good take. Everything before a black marker is now a bad take. Um, and what was the other thing? There was one. Oh, yes. Uh, front facing communications. We do have a lot of information, dense communications we have to do with members of our team and with uh, clients and collaborators. So we've started using the ATEM. Instead of writing like a, a, a 2000 word email, we create a five to 10 minute video. Uh, camera one will be the shot you're looking at now. Camera two will be a PowerPoint presentation or a keynote presentation to reinforce what we're trying to communicate to our team members, our clients or collaborators. And we found that that's a very efficient way to, um, to, to communicate information because we can check the metrics on an unlisted video on YouTube and make sure, you know, if it's been watched 10 times and sent to 10 people, then we know that everybody has watched the video and they become responsible for that information. Courtney. One thing you might look at, as I know you have a lot of iOS devices laying around there, Tony, is MixEffect Pro, if you're not using it already, because it lets you uh, fully utilize your ATEM uh, Mini uh, Pro. It lets you create uh, um, you know, animated moves to put yourself in a window and then bring up a PowerPoint or something you're using as a foreground or bring up multiple people or transition between different uh, um, you know, multiple boxes to bring guests in and in windows, et cetera. So uh, you could use that to bring in lower thirds along with a stream deck or stream deck. You can do that as well. But Mix Effect Pro is, is specifically written to do a lot of that, uh, those DVE effects that you see on network television and make it look very slick uh, for a reasonable price, about $49 for the app, I think. Jesse, do you have a quick follow-up? Uh, yes, you can also use your iPad to do lower thirds, which we do sometimes. I don't have it set up right now, but you do a, you know, a chroma background and then you animate your lower third. Make sure that there's no transparency or motion blur in your animation because that will ruin it. And then you key out the color that you've defined as your chroma. And that's a really, really, really cheap and efficient way to, to get, uh, lower thirds. Excellent. All right. Let's move on to the next question. This one's coming in from uh, Douglas Carmichael. He says, the Verizon mobile plan I have, one unlimited for iPhone, has 25 gigabytes of, uh, gigabytes of mobile hotspot data available before throttling during times of congestion. For a backup internet connection at my home office, would Verizon's 5G home plan not be a bad idea? Well, I don't think anything, you know, compared to nothing, if you don't have a backup connection, anything, even if it's marginal, will give you a safety, just, you know, this is not working, let's go to that and keep my fingers crossed. I've been surprised. Occasionally, I've had to do something from a mobile hotspot, and surprisingly, in some cases, it works really well. Courtney, what are your thoughts? Well, if you're, it depends on your Verizon 5G because there's different flavors of Verizon 5G. There's millimeter wave and there's 900 megahertz or 700 megahertz or 800 megahertz 5G, which is the low band 5G. The high band is probably less subject to network congestion because it can handle a much higher speed of uh, data traffic on it. Uh, and if they're clocking you for 25 gigabytes, uh, you may run through that a lot faster, but uh, as long as they have a, uh, a 5G tower near you and you can go on their site, Verizon's site, and get a map of 
pull up their map of 5G and find your your address on that map and find out if you're within an, a 5G millimeter wave area, which, which is the high band 5G. And that might eliminate any uh, throttling based on congestion. Uh, of course, once you hit the 25 gigabyte cap, they're going to slow you down to the slower, much slower speeds, 4G speeds, or maybe even 3G speeds, uh, once you cross that uh, unlimited, that 25 gigabyte uh, limit on your unlimited plan. All right, which takes us right to the top of the hour and time to welcome in our special guest. I am speaking slowly because I'm going to try to do it right at the top of the hour, getting ready for the future when we are more like a real show. So welcome, everybody, our friend Nick Justison, who's here from Drexel University and is going to tell us all the things we need to know about Unreal Engine and how it integrates with Blackmagic. Nick, it's good to see you again. How are you doing? Doing good, doing good. Thanks for having me. We're always excited when you show up. I know you've been investigating this stuff for a long time. What was it that caused you to think specifically of this tie-in between Unreal Engine and the Blackmagic design products? Well, it, it immediately, really, the whole purpose for me getting into Unreal Engine was for that, and that's that um, it connects with DeckLinks natively. Uh, so when you download the free software, uh, internally natively it can interface with Denklink boards and that means that anything that you create in a three-dimensional scene in Unreal Engine can be sent out an SDI out and then uh, from there you can put it into Ultimats and ATEMs and, and anything else that's in your SDI video editing stream from there so um, the whole purpose for me is virtual production and that's being able to create virtual sets and of course all kinds of broadcast graphics and, and such so um, um, that that was really my purpose for getting into Unreal Engine in the first place. I didn't get into Unreal Engine for game development at all. Um, I started dabbling with it for VR, but as as soon as I stumbled across it, oh, this interface is with DeckLink. Uh, I, I just took a whole different direction from there. All right. Uh, we'll be talking a lot about that interface, but right now, uh, we haven't talked about Unreal for a little bit of time. Can you bring us up to date on what the, the current state of what's happening with Unreal? What are the new features or are there new features or are there new uh, explorations you've done that are very exciting to you? Yeah, I mean, there's always new features coming out all the time. Uh, about a year ago at this point, uh, the version 5 was at least out in pre-release. And so today, the current version of Unreal is 5.1, 5.1.1. So there have been a few point releases already. 5.2 is out in preview right now. Um, with each of these iterations, the, the fidelity of the rendering improves, uh, the speed improves, and the capabilities, particularly in how, how well the system can render high-density geometry and how well it can simulate the physics of light, uh, constantly improves. So uh, some of the really interesting things coming in 5.2 includes a, uh, a new material model that allows for, you know, the, the geometry is the shape of an object, right? So if there's a tabletop, the shape of that tabletop, that's geometry. But if that tabletop looks like wood versus aluminum versus plastic versus uh, granite or something like that, those are materials. What happens to the light when it bounces off that surface and what does that look like? And 
in version 5.2, there's an entirely new model. They're calling it substrate. And the idea is that it's actually processing calculations for light, penetrating clear coats deep into materials. And so there are, you know, sample simulations now for, for light refracting within like stone and, and, and getting all kinds of really great effects. So, so that's really good. Um, in version five, they released two other uh, new tools in the, the back end of the engine that uh, really enhance the capabilities of what you can put into a scene. Uh, one is called Nanite, and that allows you to take really raw photogrammetry results. It doesn't have to be um, really clean geometry like uh, we used to need in, in version four and earlier. Uh, when you do a scan with photogrammetry or with LiDAR, you get lots and lots and lots of little facets uh, on the surface. And traditionally, real-time engines like Unreal don't handle that well, but Nanite in version two just kind of eats it for lunch. As long as you have a, a good RTX board, basically it's a new processing algorithm that loads all of the geometry into the NVIDIA GPU and optimizes it within the GPU so the, the CPU of the computer never sees it. Now this is all of course on PC on uh, NVIDIA RTX. Um, a nice uh, addition in version 5.1 is that the engine is now compiled native for uh, Apple Silicon. So I do have it installed on my M2 uh, MacBook Air and it's, it's working nicely there. Uh, you don't get all the features and all the high-end fidelity that you can from uh, the PC version, uh, some of the things that still don't operate on the Mac version it includes video input-output, which is a lot of what we'll be showing today on a PC. Uh, but the ability to create 3D graphics, create 3D scenes, render all of that, and have that as media that you can use uh, downstream in your productions is all there on the Mac, and so, so that's nice. So, so there's a kind of an overview of some of the things. Um, I, I got struck, yeah. stuck when you said substrates, and the reason I got stuck is I remember a conversation I had with an engineer at Technicolor, where I was talking about color grading with him, and I said, does it matter dark skin or light skin in terms of how you color balance? He said, no, because the, they're looking actually at red. They're looking at blood, which is the subcutaneous, under the surface color of everybody, regardless of ethnicity. And I'm just wondering, when you said substrate, they're looking at material materials kind of to depth. Do you think that's ever going to get into character animator and make it more realistic to be able to facially model various characters and make them more real? So so that's uh, what you're describing is, is subsurface scattering. And oh. so uh, what that is, is the, the fact that light can, um, you know, it penetrates our skin and bounces around in there against all the different kind of things that are in there. Um, some of us have more fluffy things than others uh, but eventually that, that light makes stuff. its way that, that light makes its way out and so you see it most obviously you know if you were to put a light behind your ears or shine a light through through your hand and, and you can kind of see that light glow and and that happens at different degrees uh, you know depending on the melanin characteristics of your skin and all uh, but that type of uh, simulation has has been there for quite a while uh, and and so that's already used with uh, the metahuman models that uh, Unreal released uh, a year or two ago. And uh, actually, yeah, I guess metahumans came out two years ago. And again, the 
Unreal Engine, the graphics capabilities are designed to be scalable. So you can develop for iPhone or Android uh, using Unreal Engine, but you wouldn't use all of the highest fidelity graphics settings. And so you, you can actually dial that back saying like, okay, I, I'm going to be building for a, a Snapdragon processor instead of for an NVIDIA RTX. And, and so some of those features will go away when you do that. But if you have a, very, a capable RTX uh, NVIDIA graphics board in place, then you can have the full fidelity of all the options. And Unreal also has the ability to fully uh, ray trace, path trace render. So most of the time we use Unreal Engine in what we call real-time mode, where it's constantly rendering 60, 120, I've seen it render 240 frames a second. And, and that's that's one of the greatest values of it, is it, it's just constantly rendering. Um, but it also has a traditional, what we call a path tracer, where it might take a few seconds to render a frame. And that's a more traditional rendering system that you might see built into Cinema 4D or Blender. And so that you can get like all the fidelity of a traditional ray tracer um, using that same set of graphics. I could share my screen here and show Please a little do. bit of... What, yeah, we um, always want to see what you're working on. <laughs> well, this is not me working right now. This is this is just finding a, a demo on on YouTube of what Substrate is, and so this is a demonstration of Substrate in 5.2. And so what what they're showing is that there's this sense of a three dimensional characteristic to this material. So if you're looking at like one of these flecks, it's not just like a little fleck of auto paint, and that's been around for a while. But but there's a sense of depth. To, to this. The actual geometry surface of this door is, is flat. There's no volume behind it like you would expect in a, in a glass of, of water. Um, it's just so a no flat surface. There's no real z-space there, but the simulation of z-space, this, this layered material, is this new set of features. And it also has the ability to to model the idea that well that surface could get dirty so the dirt behaves differently than when there's no dirt so as as we play through this demonstration you can see some of the different characteristics being switched on and off and so this is what's uh, coming in version 5.2 that's freely downloadable, ready to try out in preview mode, but they haven't you know, um, tested it enough to say that, yeah, this is, a, this is ready for release. Is that, um, is that yeah. finish a real type holographic type of paint job that's available, or is that just uh, only exist here in the phony world of Yule? I I think that particular Engine. I think that particular simulation is uh, is only an Unreal Engine. Um, it's intended to simulate you know some type of stone, um, but I don't believe that if you were to to buy a Rivian, I don't think that's a particular uh, specific option that's available. Well, you never you. you know because they can with diffraction gratings, holographic diffraction gratings, simulate a depth in a two D. Surface. I was wondering mm -hmm. if if car manufacturers have have adopted that yet to give you that, but that's an interesting look, definitely on the surface. Oh, Very please no! And I only say that because I once had a had a car, and I could not describe. It was kind of a dusty rose kind of thing. And when somebody said, "What color is your car?" I I flailed. 
I don't know how I would describe. Well, what I color see a lot is your of, truck. I well, see a lot of paint jobs in Hollywood that are using this this uh, micro diffraction grating, so it's this rainbow colored finish that changes, you know, as you as you right. move around the car. So yeah, and who those knows those could be next. Those types of simulations have been around for a while. So um, what I'm opening up here. So this is Unreal Engine Live right now in on my computer, and uh, this is a, a really traditional car paint material. So you can can see the the specks of uh, highlights in the you know the fleck of paint. Um, the other thing that's being simulated here is a little bit of the kind of almost of a hammered kind of a look that just the imperfections in the thickness of the paint and so it, it distorts the the reflection as it as it passes by and this is also applying uh, the mathematics it's called a Fresnel shader uh, but what we're doing here is altering the color tonality of the reflection depending on the angle of the surface relative to the camera. So we get these purple highlights off to the side. Um, and so you could see like the sun reflection here, um, when it's at this glancing angle, it's, it's kind of tinting towards purple. But if we bring that sun around to the front, we, we lose that, that purple tint. And so that's, these are some of the characteristics of uh, car paint. These, this is actually um, in, you know, if I've shown it before, the, there's an Unreal Marketplace and uh, there's a lot of free content in the marketplace that is readily available, downloaded, so that you can not only download the software for free, but if you wanted this automotive paint, I could just type in automotive as a search and then I could uh, click on free and so this is everything related to automotive content that you can readily copy into Unreal Engine at no cost right now and, and one of these sets is this automotive materials and Epic maintains this over time so this is this has been getting updated from time to time and so some of the things that you're talking about have actually been built into the engine for for a bit of time. Fascinating. Um, is, uh, Courtney, do you have more questions than that, or did you want well, to? Yeah, I kind of had a question about um, the, since we're talking about the integration of Blackmagic, besides the uh, hardware interface of the DeckLink uh, products, uh, is there any integration between the color space between and color rendering using DaVinci uh, between the Unreal generated image and, the, and an input from the live camera that's going to be placed on top of Unreal in Image, do they? Uh, does it have the ability to go out and control a a, a 12K Blackmagic design camera and set the color space to match that of the rendered image, uh, or uh, the gamut to match, or you know? So I'm not aware right now of an existing plugin that lets you do that level of control. Uh, right now. In theory, it's possible, uh, particularly on the PC. I'm just trying to see if I could find I used to have it on my desk, and, and now I don't seem to have it. Um, you know, there is a product from Blackmagic uh, called the SDI Arduino Shield. Ah, here it is. <laughs> hey, Nick, it's you just everything. popped up a lot to like negative 12 or 13. Just, I, I just want to make sure right. we don't. Yeah, I just have to be careful how close I get to the to the uh, camera or, or microphone here, but um, I guess for the sake of editing, I should probably just keep this screen share on and you guys can switch what you want. Um, so this is a standard Arduino Uno, 
And on top of it is a Blackmagic Arduino shield. And this has SDI, in particular, what we're interested in is SDI output. And so uh, with a DLL on, on the PC, you can interface to this and transmit the same commands to Blackmagic cameras as an ATEM can natively. So obviously I have this and, and you know it's on my radar to do someday. Um, the reality is it's so easy to control a camera over the ATEM and with the ATEM remote software or console that um, yeah it's, it's, a, it's a kind of return on investment in terms of time versus value and, and I just haven't really gotten the development all the way there yet. So um, in theory it would be possible to connect to that DLL through Unreal Engine and literally operate any Blackmagic camera the same way you would over an ATEM. It's just it's some more uh, coding, you know, co copy pasting, Googling, et cetera, to, to get all that code to work. So just using the API of uh, Blackmagic's API could go in and adjust the color space of the camera in the camera itself. Mm -hmm. And then also the, the other, the reverse approach is possible. So you can, you can do all your color in your ATEM console or your ATEM control software for your cameras. And then when you set up the, the video as it's either brought into Unreal or if it's output from Unreal, there are color science features built into Unreal specifically for this. So you, you could dial in the Unreal Engine color to match the color that you want, you know, that's coming in from your cameras. And uh, also you could bring in the the data straight out of your camera via SDI into Unreal Engine and then adjust color inside Unreal from there uh, after the fact. And it's all happening in floating point in, in Unreal. So you're, you know, as, as long as you're doing your math correctly and you're not clipping anything, you, you retain all the original, uh, you know, 10 bit fidelity. So you start with a common point white point between the two and then mm -hmm. and go from there. I see. Yeah. Cool. Well, we do have a lot of questions popping up here. Did you have anything else, Nick, that you'd prepared that you wanted to set us up with before we dive into questions? Um, you know, I, I, I could. I mean, I, I have, uh, I guess the, the biggest thing to share, uh, you know, if, if we're looking at my screen share here, is that uh, in this comp computer, I have two different DeckLink boards. So there is a DeckLink SDI 4K, and that has... Um, a dedicated output and a dedicated input. So these are SDI uh, input-output, although I, I don't know if which one is which right now. Um, and there's also a DeckLink Duo board, and so that has four SDI connections on it, and each of those four can either be an input or an output. And so you can see here in, in the standard Blackmagic DeckLink video setup that uh, I have DeckLink four, three, two, one. So this, as far as any piece of software on the uh, computer actually appears as if, even though it's one physical board, it appears as though it is actually four different uh, connections. Plus I've got an input and an output here. And so I just thought I'd kind of show just how quickly and easily this um, interfaces in Unreal Engine. So I've, I've just got, this is uh, just a basic office scene. And uh, down here is you know anything that I have in my uh, project. And so what I could do is create a new folder to store my BMD, Blackmagic Design, IO, input output. 
And so if I want to bring Blackmagic output into my scene, so in this case, I've got my video feed that I'm showing you over Zoom. That is also, I think I have that routed to go into the uh, Decklink 4K. So I could right click and create a media bundle. And I'll just call this BMD input. And double click on that. And so I say media source. It's going to be a Blackmagic media source. And from Blackmagic here now I have my list of all my inputs. And I will, uh, so I've got all four of my duos. I'm going to ignore those for now and just take this SDI uh, 4K. And that's it. If I save that, I think that's all I need. I should be able to just drag this out here and bring it into view. It's, maybe it's backwards. And there we go. And I'm not actually sending anything there. So let's see here. Uh, let's try a different output input. Um, hmm. So this should be this should be my my deck link. Uh, just see if I have anything else. Let's try this to 10 bit. Does that help? Save that? No. Well, normally I would be seeing my video output. Oh, wait a minute. I know what I'm doing wrong. I'm not sending. Uh, I shouldn't. I guess I'm not sending my video to there. So let me bring up my ATEM control and just make sure that output to it is getting camera two. So let's just try, just double check which of my inputs that's connected to. Oh, I didn't apply that. There we go. SDI 4K, apply. Ta-da. Okay, so um, uh, this is sRGB. And now we're all better. Okay, there we go. So that quickly, that easily, you know, this is my 3D Unreal Engine scene. And so now I can bring that video feed and just kind of hang it on the wall like a video screen or, um, this is available as a material or as a texture. I could put this on anything. So if I had a 3D model of a screen, whether it was a projection screen or a television, um, that's all, all there. And, and so there we go, it's live. And, and so that's, that's a basic input. And then output works very similar. I would just uh, create something called a media output. So here's a Blackmagic media output. And uh, let's see here. I'm going to connect this to my um, ATEM input three. So I think this is actually my decklink deck link out. So I'll just call this decklink out. And double click here. And so again, I will uh, choose my decklink. In this case, this is the dedicated output of the decklink. I'll still go with my 1080-30 FPS. And that is all set. And so we'll save that. And we need to tell this what it needs to see. So I'm going to add a, a quick camera to this. So we'll just do a cine camera actor here, which is just basically the, the idea of putting a camera into the scene. We'll rotate this camera around. You can see here what the camera sees. Do, 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 do. There we go. Let's, let's pull this back a little bit further. There we go. So now we can see that, that room a little bit. And finally, I have, uh, this is my little media capture panel that basically tells Unreal, all right, I want to put this camera out 
a Blackmagic output. So I'm capturing the viewport with this uh, camera views. And I'm going to use that camera. So we'll add a camera. And I can't find it, so I'll just type in the camera. And here it is. And I want that to go out my Blackmagic uh, deck link out. So deck link out and capture. So this is what's being captured. And if I switch my ATEM to that, now you can see. So um, this is the third input of my little ATEM SDI on my desk. So you, now you're seeing me. I'm probably a little bit delayed because now my video is going into Unreal Engine. It's going up on that screen. Then the camera is capturing it and uh, sending it out to the ATEM. So, so you might be seeing the video a little bit after my audio, but that's it. Um, that is the, the real basics of, of connecting uh, Unreal to the SDI universe. Uh, I guess the only other, you know, I don't have to go through the demos because it seems like we do have a backlog of questions, which is awesome. Uh, but one of the nice things too is that there is a, essentially a compositing engine built into Unreal as well. So if I wanted to do really fancy lower thirds, three-dimensional graphics like you see in Super Bowl broadcasts and those kinds of things, I could have all of those graphics in Unreal Engine. Uh, they could be receiving live data from statistics software. So whether that was a JSON video uh, data feed or any, any of a number of different kinds of data feeds, we could be getting live data uh, from whatever is happening in the real world. And the lower third graphics could be uh, being created based on that data, based on actual reflections. They could be fully animated. And um, Unreal Engine can output not only the RGB of those graphics, but also uh, in real time the mask for that so that I could essentially feed my ATEM a downstream key with both the fill and the mat live from Unreal. And that's where having multiple deck links or the duo board really comes in handy because you can use one output as your fill and the other output is the mask. And uh, the ATEM just devours that natively. So yeah, Nick, there do we you go. think at this point the deck link, is that what you would send most people to if they wanted to explore this kind of thing? Are there, you, you mentioned a different board. What are the options for people who want to get into this technology and play with it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, as long as you're on a PC and, and I guess, yeah, you have to be on a PC because the uh, drivers for this don't function on the Mac platform. Um, but I, I definitely feel like the, the Blackmagic DeckLink boards are really the best price to performance, uh, and particularly at entry level. Uh, Unreal also supports AJA. In, uh, video input output. So if, if you happen to already have AJA, then then don't buy anything new. Just use those. They're, they're exactly the way this connects with Blackmagic. It can also connect to AJA. But if you don't have anything right now, um, there are some really low cost entry level uh, decklink boards that you can get that are you know less than a couple hundred dollars. And uh, ideally, you get one that has at least an input and an output, so you can experiment with both. And uh, for me, the Duo is a fantastic price-to-performance uh, ratio. I think I, I probably, at this point, have like three of those. I just keep buying those. Uh, just because it's four connectors, and any of those connectors can be either an input or an output. So depending on if you need more outputs operating, you can use it for more outputs. If you need more inputs operating, you can use it for inputs. So I'm preparing for a, uh, a live event 
live stream broadcast that's coming up on June 1st. And we're hoping to actually use one of our DeckLink duos in a sonnet box with uh, Zoom ISO to bring our our Zoom guests into Unreal Engine so that they can be appearing in the Unreal Engine space um, while they're, you know, kind of on our, you know, green room stage uh, through through Zoom ISO. That is awesome. Wow. So that would right. be nice to have those all those four inputs so that all our different guests can be coming in over SDI. Can you Absolutely. use... Absolutely. Uh, Oh, sorry, sorry for no. Go ahead, jumping on you there. But can yeah, you use uh, the cheap uh, HDMI, uh, 1080p HDMI to USB capture? So the CVB input that is standard and uh, you know, so webcam basically based input will that come into Unreal Engine? Uh, on a, on a PC, yes. So on a PC, yes, there is. It's it's a different mechanism than the uh, Blackmagic. Link mm -hmm. and AJA connection, but you can bring in essentially any web camera. Uh, you know, if you have an ATEM, so that you could use an ATEM as another interface, but through that, you only get uh, the USB video. Uh, one of the nice things about the deck links is that you can, if you want to, if you're in a professional setting, you can uh, bring in timecode as well as Genlock, and so you can actually synchronize Unreal Engine's rendering to the clock that you're synchronizing your cameras is with. And, and so, um, so there's some added features there, but absolutely just getting started with bringing video into Unreal Engine, absolutely you can do that with a USB camera source. And then you could output over second HDMI output port or any, any other, as long as your video card supports multiple HDMI outputs, you could output over a secondary HDMI monitor connection. Yeah, yeah, that's... Um, Interestingly, a little more challenging. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, Unreal Engine isn't actually set up to address each GPU output individually. So it does a much better job of addressing DeckLink and AJA outputs individually. There is a, a tool set that is, it comes with Unreal Engine and it is designed to do that, but it's it's an extra piece of configuration. It's called N display, N being like any number of mm -hmm. displays. Um, but so there's some extra steps to that. Uh, we use that when we're doing our uh, virtual production walls. So if we're, we have a, a wall size display as a backdrop instead of a green screen on set, and that's gonna be seen by the camera in that wall, needs to update in real time what's in that imagery so that if, as the camera moves, the camera can actually look around trees or posts and things like that. Mm -hmm. And so end display is part of that technology chain where uh, we track the camera and display sends the unreal output to this massive wall sized screen. And uh, that's how that's achieved. And so that feature set end display can address those individuals areas of the uh, desktop and and so yeah it's possible it's just it, it's great it's worth the effort when you're when you're doing a, a wall and you're actually seeing a three-dimensional world beyond your talent in front of a camera that's awesome um and it, again for, for me a couple hundred dollars to put a deck link board in and just say hey yeah. unreal take this camera put it out to uh this deck link port and that's so much easier <laughs> so uh, all right we do we're getting behind on our questions here so we're going to hop yeah. up to our producer questions i did one indication if you have a question for nick and you haven't put it in yet we still have room for a few more and vote on those questions to determine what but courtney let's get to our first one 
Okay, comes in from uh, Jack Rupel in uh, Breckenridge, Colorado. He says, I was listening to YouTube video and they said iPhones record orientation in Quantarion space, not vector space. Is this used in Unreal Engine? Face tracking, camera tracking, etc.? So, I mean, quaternions are just a mathematical approach to um, defining rotations and, and translations in, uh, in three-dimensional space. And I say just, um, the, the big thing about quaternions is that they're, almost, they're, they're far less susceptible to gimbal lock uh, versus traditional XYZ vector space, right? So um, in XYZ, if I've got this camera, um, X might be the, the horizontal axis, right? So that's going to be my tilt. Uh, XYZ, so in Unreal Engine's world, Z is the vertical axis. So uh, that would be my pan. And of course, then Y would be through the front. And so there's my... Uh, roll. And so if I were to um, roll into my x-axis on the camera, the z-axis for the camera stays vertical. And in XYZ space, if I line up my z and my x, all of a sudden, I, I just I can't move it and it's locked. And I'm also susceptible to saying, okay, I'm going to 360 degrees and then, uh, oh, it's, it's zero degrees now. And, and it could pop back. And so there's there's a variety of undesirable artifacts when you're processing the mathematics of rotational um, movement in 3D. And so Quaternion is just a, a different approach than Vector for, for handling that. And yes, Unreal Engine has that. So um, so that's kind of the, the background of that. I hopefully, hopefully I addressed that question. You did great. And I, I feel like I'm slightly smarter than I was when I came into this. <laughs> Good job. Just very slightly. Let's move on to the next question. Next one comes in from uh, Bobby Rafferty in Central Florida. He says, what is Unreal Engine doing in the augmented reality space? Nick so, Belt. yeah, I mean, um, Unreal Engine does have libraries for, if you're talking about... Um, creating augmented reality on, on handheld devices. Those libraries exist uh, built into Unreal Engine or readily downloadable from their sources. So if you want to create an AR app for an Android phone or iOS phone, those libraries exist in Unreal and, and, and they can work. And so you can absolutely create that. Another thing that um, Unreal fully supports is input-output via uh, USD as well as uh, GL. TF, GLB, uh, which are both kind of transportable AR uh, 3D formats. So anything that you create in the engine uh, can be exported into those formats for use in, in AR and in web AR and, and, and those sorts of things. Uh, there are, of course, also libraries for things like the, uh, the uh, Magic Leap and other AR headsets like the, uh, the Microsoft's ones, uh, HoloLens. So, uh, so absolutely, you can interface any of these AR technologies with Unreal Engine. Um, where, I, where I'm using it the most right now in terms of AR is broadcast AR. So, again, this is uh, kind of like the sports broadcasts and um, the 
uh, let's see, you know, you might see in, in Weather Channel and sort of things where you've got uh, a presenter and there's a hurricane happening around them and, and stuff has fallen down in front of them. None of that stuff is on set. And it's a little bit different than pure green screen where you've, you're taking the, the green screen image, knocking out the green screen and replacing it with some uh, three-dimensional or virtual background because some elements are now falling in front of or appearing in front of the, the on-screen talent. And so that is uh, AR uh, in the broadcast world. And all of that is supported in Unreal Engine. So a lot of the broadcasters these days are using uh, tools that are Unreal Engine derivatives. So uh, Zero Density, Pixitope, um, the, there's a few others that are all essentially based on the source code of Unreal Engine, which is freely downloadable from GitHub, and uh, they create their own solutions optimized for broadcasts where they may change the UI so that it's more familiar for, for broadcast engineers as well as um, maybe tweak some of the rendering features and uh, just try and make things as uh, smooth as possible to interface in the broadcast world. So, uh, so yeah, Unreal Engine supports all of those things. Let's go to the next question. This one comes in from uh, Jack Rupel in Brackenridge, Colorado. He says, is the LiDAR camera, I guess on an iPhone, used in MetaHuman? What resolution is needed for FaceTrack? So uh, for face tracking, we're actually not using the LiDAR camera. So I have an iPhone 14 Pro here. And um, if you were to use the face tracking features of this to drive the face of a metahuman. There's uh, free software from Epic that you can install on your iOS device, and that will work uh, whether or not you have LiDAR on that. So it works, I actually used that with an iPhone 10, iPhone X, I don't know what the right word for those are. Um, but as long as it has face recognition, face tracking, it'll use that uh, stereoscopic uh, facial recognition camera that's on the front-facing setup. And that uh, will track your, your three-dimensional features of your face and then use that as a set of controls to effectively puppet the metahuman. So that's not using LiDAR. Now, there is a different set of features uh, for metahumans if you wanted to create your individual or somebody else in the real world, you want to create the shape of their head on a metahuman. You can use photogrammetry for that, and so that doesn't require LiDAR. You could try LiDAR, but again, um, LiDAR is, by definition, infrared, and so depending on the melanin content of, of someone's skin, that you'll get, you know, your, your mileage may vary when you're trying to scan with the, the LiDAR in a phone in terms of getting a 3D model as a base for creating a metahuman. I actually just favor using uh, photogrammetry, preferably with uh, cross-polarized lens and lighting sources to, to get a good three-dimensional model using photogrammetry. And then there's a, a tool set in the metahuman ecosystem that allows you to convert that into the head of a metahuman that's fully rigged and ready to be used. Nice. Let's go to the next question. So it comes in from Douglas Carmichael. He says, many 3D DVE engines can map live video onto cubes or similar shapes. Can you do that with Unreal Engine? Absolutely. Yeah. So ultimately, um, the, I'll just kind of break down the structure of a, of a 3D universe. Uh, before I was talking about um, 
the table being the mesh or the model, that's, that's the shape of that physical object. And material is what happens on the surface of that object, that, that mesh, when light hits it and bounces off it, or you know maybe light is emitting from it, and that, that would be like a TV screen. Um, the material definition is, is essentially the physics that are going on, and that can further be informed by something called a 2D texture. And so a 2D texture is ultimately a two-dimensional image. That could be generated, you know, that could be a ramp, zero to one, black to white. It could be a noise pattern if you just wanted kind of random noise. It could be, uh, but it could also be an image. And so ultimately, I guess if um, my screen is still sharing, so maybe I, that's visible here. So in, um, in Unreal here, this is the video input. Uh, again, I was in my uh, Blackmagic I.O. and I have my Blackmagic input. Um, what this is doing is bringing that SDI input and ultimately dropping it onto a texture. And a texture is just a 2D image. And so I can choose to spread this 2D image any way I like over any surface in the world. So if I wanted to, you know, if I, I could potentially attach my uh, video here to a, um, to a chair. I, I don't know what would happen if I did that. I'm, I'm just gonna try it and see what happens here. I love one. Let's <laughs> it's, go rogue. Uh, yeah, let's go rogue. Okay, so that's not working. Let me try something different. Let me just drag and drop this on there. So this will build a new material specific to that chair using this texture. And then there, um, to a certain degree, there I am. Like there's, there's my ear and face. Um, you know, this is a rather uncomfortable place. I wouldn't want to actually be on this part of the chair if I could avoid it, but uh, but there I am. So that could be a cube, that could be anything. And so uh, that's- We can also see the reflection of your your virtual monitor on the on the table in the foreground too. So right, yeah. So it is mapped so, into the reflection. So it, yeah, so this is, you know, for all intents and purposes, physically in this space. Um, and then let me just see if I can fix my chair so my- my face isn't where somebody's butt's going to be. You don't want to accidentally oh, leave well. that there, I don't think. This is, I'm just going to delete that one, hit W, and just, you know, I'll just replace that chair. There we go. There we go. So now we now, now all is well in the world. So, there you go. Okay. I always need to know where the undo key is. Yeah. Anyway. So, yeah, so this, so, you know, when we look at the hierarchy of, uh, you know, what's going on in this three-dimensional world, the mesh is the physical shape of the, the chair, the material defines how that uh, material, that shape responds to light, um, but it could also emit light. And so if I were to double click on this, this is the definition of the material. Um, I'm getting the RGB of that texture and that's going in as the base color and the alpha is going in as opacity mask. And then I could have other textures that define, you know, specul specular is how how shiny is it or how reflective is it or not? And then roughness is how blurry is that reflection, et cetera. And is it metal or not? And, and so there's, there's lots to this, um, but absolutely. You could take the, uh, that texture, that, that video and bring it in uh, and put it on any shape you'd like in uh, Unreal. Nice, next question, please. Okay, sorry. Screen share must be up there. All right, uh, Bill Mew in uh, 
Turnbridge Wells in the UK says, if you're not an Unreal Engine master yet, then is there a good marketplace for studio sets that you can adapt for your own use? Uh, so yes, absolutely. So um, my favorite one is, so this, what I have on my screen, if we're uh, sharing the screen, uh, this is the, it's called the Unreal Engine Launcher or the Epic Launcher. And this is kind of like the main hub of all things Epic on your computer. And in this, uh, I'm on the Unreal Engine page and I was showing uh, the marketplace before where I had searched for automotive and, and we had gotten that list of assets. But there's also a tab here called samples and everything in samples is free. And there are a couple samples here that are kind of handy. Um, this one right here is the Virtual Studio. This is what I use for a lot of uh, my students or a lot of clients that are learning Unreal Engine for the first time, particularly in a broadcast setting. So this uh, actually has multiple Virtual Studio layouts built into it. So this, so far we're looking at that one primary studio, but there's actually three or four additional studios and it has all of the uh, individual components as well so you know the, this this television display screen is in there these logos these i-beams all of these things are in there and, and you could play with it like it's a three-dimensional lego set and so that's completely free so um, my you know initial recommendation if you're playing around and you want to kind of a broadcast studio type of setting is go under samples and uh, download that virtual studio. There is a Excellent. newer oh. broadcast sample, but uh, that's really highlighting some more advanced features. So, so go with the, um, yeah, go with the virtual studio. Nice. Next question, please. This one comes in from uh, Jack Rupel in Brackenridge, Colorado. He says, is it possible to use GIS data to anchor camera positions? I'm compositing data and physics visualization with archive video and film. Oh, is the GIS stuff precise enough to anchor a camera? I generally wouldn't, like, not for a perfect overlap, uh, but there are plugins where you can um, use GIS data. So there's a, the, the one that I play around with quite a bit is, is Cesium. Uh, so this is a, a full-fledged uh, GIS database and uh, plug-in for Unreal. And so you can ultimately enter in any set of coordinates in, in the real world and have that in Unreal Engine. Now, uh, by default, you get the kind of non-three-dimensional view of, of the space. So you do get your uh, height maps uh, of the terrain and you get color on that. Um, the buildings, I think for the textured buildings, you might have to purchase data sets, uh, but they are, you know, accurate with, you know, GPS coordinates. I've, um, you know, experimented with this for uh, a few different things that are um, in the real world that I, that I have personal experience being at, and it, it is, it's one-to-one. -one. Uh, you can, of course, augment this. You can bring in your own models. You can, uh, there's also some YouTube uh, sources where you can capture using a, a um, little kind of injection tool that can capture what's in your GPU. You can actually uh, capture three-dimensional models from Google Maps. Now, of course, 
you're not licensed to use those commercially, but um, you can capture those and bring those in as 3D models into Unreal Engine as well. Uh, usually what I do, like if I, so I have had some projects where I'm working with uh, structures that are several hundred years old and we have photography of those structures back to at least the 1890s, maybe even 1880s. And, and so I will use um, essentially my 3D tracking tools in Maya instead and line up those cameras perfectly so that I can position a CG camera exactly relative to that structure where the photographer was standing in the 1880s, 1890s and get a perfect match to that so that you could literally crossfade between the uh, CG rendering of the either the, the 3D model or uh, 3D scan um, in, in Unreal and crossfade to that black and white photo from the 1800s and, and get an absolute perfect fit. And you can actually even um, calculate the lens distortion. So Unreal does support lens distortion models. And so you can, you can get an absolute precise fit if necessary that way. Um, cool. But if you're just using GIS, yeah, you, you can do that. Next question comes in from uh, Bobby Rafferty in Central Florida. He says, what further integration do you see coming in Unreal Engine 5.2? Maybe he's talking about Black put on Magic your speculation hat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, actually, um, let's see. Don't go to my screen share yet, but let me see if I can uh, get a tab open here. In, uh, so Unreal Roadmap. That, uh, folks at Epic are really actually very open about what's coming and uh, they actually have it publicly posted. So if you want to go to my screen share now, uh, I just Googled, um, you know, Unreal Roadmap. And uh, the first link is uh, something, this is their developer network, and there's a link in there to, to get to the roadmap. So this will tell you everything they plan to release in 5.2. Uh, so some of the things I'm excited about are procedural content generation. And if you kind of look at this uh, little GIF animation, what you're seeing is that dynamically, not only are we moving this, this ground structure, but procedurally the software is calculating, oh, this side is now close enough that I could have a fallen log across it. Well, now it's not. I'll put the log over here. So this is programmatically adjusting the environment in response to the position of multiple objects. So it's evaluating those things in real time. And so that makes creating these worlds much uh, more dynamic. Uh, some fun stuff is uh, physics being able to be integrated into animation. So what we're seeing here is the this character is animated, steering a wheel and, and shifting gears, but they're put in a very, very bouncy uh, you know, machine cab. And so there's a certain degree of physics that's actually influencing uh, their spine. So again, this for animations uh, and for narratives, this is this is pretty interesting. Um, it looks much more realistic than I would have expected for that kind of character. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's just so so those you can browse this and see everything that's coming out in uh, in the next version. So um, yeah, I would totally in, uh, encourage encourage browsing through that. So nice. We've go. still got more questions to work through, so let's get to mm -hmm. the next one. I don't want to leave anybody behind if we can avoid yeah, it. Yeah, that, yeah. We're running, let's go for it. Next one comes from Bill Mew in uh, uh, 
Tunbridge Wells in the UK says, are you using Blackmagic for video input, for example, green screen, or video output for your switch and stream? So uh, a little of both. Um, before the, the new Ultimate 12s came out, I had been doing most of my keying um, rather begrudgingly in Unreal Engine. So Unreal Engine does have a keying functionality built into it. And so you can absolutely do your keying uh, directly there. So you could just take the, the raw video feed. If I bring up my, uh, my ATEM control, I could show you what my camera looks like. So this is my foreground input. So this is what my camera is actually seeing. And so I could feed this straight out of the camera through the SDI into Unreal, and then I could key that there if I wanted to. But honestly, since the Ultimate 12s came out, um, you know, with the HD versions have this, these great price points and, and they're very nicely featured um, functions. So I, I tend to use those now for, for my live keying. Uh, but you can do it in Unreal Engine. And it is also nice that, you know, in an indie setting at home experimenting, you could get an inexpensive uh, HD deck link board that has an input and output. You could send your green screen video feed in. Or honestly, you could use a USB video source as long as you have that green screen and then key it in Unreal Engine um, and set yourself behind a desk and, and you're good to go. So you can do Excellent. that. Absolutely. Let's go to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael, he says, when playing out an Unreal Engine scene live, do you just click the play button in the UE editor, as I see now, or is it done in a different way? So it is actually a different way. Um, so I'm not running. Uh, I'm not running in play mode right now. So the engine itself is uh, running as editor, right? So there's several different modes when you're editing a scene. You're in editor mode, and uh, there's a variety of ways you could say, you know, play in editor. You could play. You know, play is basically if this was an application or a video game or VR experience, I could activate that, and um, and these are a few different modes that that could be running. Uh, but I'm fully in editor mode right now, and so the Blackmagic input outputs are actually fully functional in editor mode. So I'm not running this. I'm not running simulation or play in editor. Uh, essentially, there is media capture. And so that media capture is what is basically converting the uh, camera video into an output uh, for the deck link. So, and, and that's, that's live right now. So if I switch my camera over to that, if I were to uh, move the camera in Unreal Engine, uh, this is all happening live in editor. And so um, that fully functions that way. I also have the option of running this as a video game and having that output go through SDI. So uh, this functions in both modes. And so that's, uh, that's kind of handy. So that's, that's how that works. It's uh, cool. media capture. Excellent, next question. Comes in from Brian Duck in Plymouth, Michigan. He says, is there a recommended option for using HDMI in to Unreal versus SDI? So I definitely favor SDI. Uh, the SDI boards, again, have the Genlock reference uh, connector on most of those. There is a DeckLink board that's like the Duo, but it's an HDMI version. It doesn't have the Genlock input. I have not used it. It's not officially listed as being supported, but I have heard of folks using that and it working. So you could use that as 
an HDMI input-output interface. And so if you have an HDMI ATEM, uh, if you've got the pocket cine cameras with the HDMI out, that would be a way of doing it. Uh, personally, I, I've pretty much standardized everything. Even my desktop ATM is the ATEM SDI. Uh, so I, almost everything I do, I use SDI cables. Um, and so I, I'll, if I have an HDMI camera, I'll use a, a bi-directional converter for that. Let's go to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael, he says, what's the best way to get started with Unreal Engine? I've done the epic first hour in UE course and enjoyed it, but where do you go from there? What's Douglas's next step? Yeah, so um, so if you've done the first hour, you've, you've kind of got a flavor for it. The, the challenge with the first hour is that it's, it's really generic. It doesn't necessarily prepare you for virtual broadcast production versus creating a video game versus creating VR. So, you know, everyone learns differently. Um, I used to learn really well from, from books, um, you know, and, and so if we ever have Steve Wright back again and, and like, you know, the good book of Wright, that's how I, that and, and Alex Lindsay is how I learned compositing. Um, but also I learn really well from having a challenge, a project to deliver on, and then I just have to learn everything that's involved in achieving that project. So um, the first project that I took on personally after getting through that first hour of, of Unreal was I wanted to have a virtual set. Uh, in, I wanted to put myself into an Unreal scene. So uh, I learned the, the Blackmagic input outputs. And, and this, was, this was like early in, early in the pandemic. I had used Unreal before the pandemic hit, but once the pandemic hit, I knew like this is how I'm going to um, create my my Zoom worlds, and so uh, I learned the input output and made sure that functioned. And that it didn't matter. It did it, you know again the scene that I, I have on my computer right now. Um, I think I acquired it for free. Actually, oh that's a good note by the way. Another thing to do is uh, go into the Unreal Engine marketplace. So let me. Um, Google search Unreal Marketplace, and um, look at all the free stuff, right? So you can go to the free area, and hopefully my screen share is coming through right now. And uh, one of the things you could do is search by oldest first, because there's some kind of neat little things in here in the old version. There's like there's uh, lessons on uh, realistic rendering, and it has an apartment in there. There's like this really cool uh, scene that's like a futuristic office space that's got a tree growing in it. Um, so you can get these and just play around with them and, and create your own sorts of things. One other thing about the Unreal Engine marketplace is that uh, every first Tuesday of the month, the free for the month uh, options cycle over. So hey, today is the first Tuesday of May, and sure enough, we have a brand new set of five things that are completely free to download until the first Friday uh, or first Tuesday of June. So like get these, just like add to cart, add to cart, add to cart. <laughs> and just just get those right away. There I am getting those things and uh, and check out. And, and you won't even have to put in your credit card. So what's in there today? All right, there's some kind of uh, Nick, mansion. I hate to do it to you, but I think we are right at the close uh, okay. point. Uh, sorry so there you go, that. just get those things and play with them. That's my advice. 
Absolutely. Nick, this has been a pleasure once again. Thank you. We come away with this really understanding so much more about the possibilities of things like Unreal Engine. And without you, that would be impossible. So we really, truly do appreciate your coming here every day or every time you're able to show up and helping us. Don't forget Wednesday coming up, Ambisonics Day. We're going to break down the fundamentals of Ambisonics. That's tomorrow. Thursday, Five Basics of Video Creation. On Friday, we're having Epifan in. That's going to be exciting to deal with how they're doing things with uh with epifan's newest thing we talked about a lot about them at nab um volunteer co-invocation with alex Lindsay's first saturday of every month so it is the first of the month here so if you want to get into that please do thanks so much to our producers our panelists the crew the back end so many people make this possible and without you as our producers without the panelists who come here every day and volunteer their t- I'm to answer questions and help you understand what is going on. None of this would be possible. And our amazing back-end group of people, uh, they do yeoman's work every day, bringing this to you and making it possible for office hours to exist. We also, don't forget, have after hours that run 24 uh, 7. When we're not here doing the show, we are on after hours paying attention to that. We are heading up to the last minute of the show. So it's just time to say thank you, each and every one of you who come here every day and help us produce this show and put it on. And my gigantic thanks go out to Nick Justician for being our special guest today and bringing us all up to date on this fabulous new technology. Thanks for being here. We'll see you tomorrow. There we go. I guess I'll just have to keep coming back on Tuesdays. Please, please, please. We'd love to see you whenever you can come. Anytime I can come, I I will. It's been unreal, man. It's been been epic. Been epic. I wanted to see. I left 45 minutes for the credits. Let's see if we're out at the top of the hour. 45 minutes? We've got 45 45 minutes of film. 45 seconds. It's just because my last name is in the credits. It takes a lot longer time now. (laughs) That's it. Three seconds Three, per syllable. 54, yeah. 55. And right there, right at the top of the, I did it. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you all today so much. Thanks, everybody. Have a great Tuesday. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate it. Great job. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.